2: Hey, uh, we're about to get to our show, but first I wanted to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Linda. Uh, Linda is a great way to learn just about anything. It's already February. If you've made some New Year's resolutions to pick up some new skills, this is the time to invest in yourself. Uh, They've got over 3,000 courses, all taught by experts. Millions of people around the world take them. They've got everything from Basic stuff like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop, too. I was just checking out uh, the audio software, Logic, which I'd love to learn. JavaScript for web designers would definitely help me out. Um, anyway, whether you want to set new financial goals, find a work-and-life balance, find a new hobby ask your boss for a raise, whatever you're trying to do in 2015, lynda.com has something for you. So I want you to go to lynda, lynda.com slash long and sign up for a 10 day free trial. This is for our listeners. You'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com. Even if you're on your phone, wherever, watch the videos, learn something new. Go ahead. I challenge you. Thank you, lynda.com. Here we are with the show.
3: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. Hey. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-host Aaron Lammer and National Magazine Award winner Evan Ratliff. We are talking hey. to Evan Ratliff yeah. the morning after he won a National Magazine Award. We had already taped an intro, we're taping a new one, Evan you look like shit.
4: Yeah, I feel terrible. He dro- great.
3: He
2: broke a statue already. <laughs> <I'm> broken. <laughs> it's broken. It's got a chip in it. <laughs> D-
4: no, don't tell James Verini.
2: <laughs> it came with that defect.
3: <laughs> uh,
4: congratulations man Thank you It's well I mean I didn't do that much It's it's feature writing So it's James Verini Won it Essentially Together with uh, Charlie Homans Who edited the story I just uh, I just got to s- Go out and celebrate it
3: As we've previously Discussed on this podcast You just won it as me And I'm very excited Yeah yeah. Go I'm ahead excited. Evan Radliff
4: Yeah Actually uh, More than one Podcast guest uh, Amanda Hess won Yeah Yeah Last night, too, which was pretty amazing.
3: Well, Evan, who did you talk to for this week's episode? Uh,
4: This week I talked to Molly Crabapple, uh, actually of Vice fame, uh, of recent fame. She's an artist. She uh, has had a really interesting career. She's uh, done everything from paint murals uh, in nightclubs to uh, illustrate Matt Taibbi's book, um and then she started doing her own journalism and uh we talked a lot about that. She's done some great stories.
2: Yeah, she had a really good uh vice piece about Dubai that I think was in our best of the year roundup for twenty fourteen. For sure. Yeah, that piece is great. Check that out and check out this interview. Uh who's sponsoring the show this week? I think you know the answer to that question. That is correct. It's Squarespace. Uh, you might have caught their excellent uh, Super Bowl ad with Jeff Bridges. It was my favorite of the Super Bowl. Go Patriots. Uh, if you're looking to set up a portfolio, a personal site, even a store, they're the way to go. This is I tell people this all the time. I'm not going to make you a website. I forget how to make websites. Go to Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. Thank you, Squarespace. And a special offer for our listeners. If you go there and put in promo code longform, You'll get ten percent off.
3: Another special offer for our listeners: we're going to give you some inside information on the best way to send an email newsletter. It's with Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. Some of the good people at Mailchimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. Here's National Magazine Award winner Evan Ratliff
4: with Molly Crabapple. So, welcome to the podcast, Molly Crabapple.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah,
4: thanks for coming over. I kind of wanted to first just give a little background to people who don't know about sort of like how you, how you established yourself as an artist and then how you got into doing sort of more journalistic things. So just sort of starting at the beginning, like how did you, how did you learn how to draw? Where did you grow up?
0: I'm from Far Rockaway. My mom um, is an illustrator. I've been drawing since I was four years old. I have never had a time in my life when I wasn't just drawing compulsively. But I don't know. I started drawing professionally, I guess, when I was 17, maybe. And by professionally, I'm using that in a very loose term. I mean, I was drawing people's pets for money.
4: Uh, like in the neighborhood?
0: Yeah. I I would put up flyers in delis offering to draw people's pets for 20 bucks a piece, and also uh, flyers in Forbidden Planet offering to draw their D&D characters.
4: I probably would have uh, taken you up on that service when I was a teenager. Like, I needed someone to draw my <laughs> D&D characters. Like-
0: I mean, I, I think it was helping people visualize they're like half-elf, half-dwarf <laughs> person. And um, my first professional job ever was a cover for Al Goldstein's Screw Magazine, which I was really proud of, because all these cool underground artists did the covers for that back in the day. Yeah.
4: How does one end up as the cover illustrator for Screw Magazine?
0: I had a bunch of these these horribly done porn doodles, and I... I, I sent them in an envelope to the art director and I wrote this very bombastic cover letter about how great I was. And they wrote me back and they paid me a hundred whole bucks to do this cover. I thought I was big
4: star. Were you a person who sort of like thought about going to art school or did go to art school for a while and drop out or anything like that? Or was or were you always just self-taught, self-trained?
0: I went to art school. Um, I dropped out of it. But the art school I went to was really, really cheap. I couldn't afford to go to the good one that all of the sort of big illustrators usually go to, which is SVA. Uh-huh. I went to this horrifically bad school called FIT. And it's- I mean, I at the time, I was very sad to have gone to such a bad school, but I always am sort of grateful to my mother for not letting me go to a good one because I never had the debt that limits so many people.
4: So you, you were able to sort of like pay, pay yeah, your way through it. Yeah,
0: it, it cost nearly nothing.
4: At what point did you decide to drop out?
0: I was doing a lot of professional work as an artist. I was working full-time as a model. And then um, I had an abortion, and I had a really like bad physical reaction to it afterwards. And I just... It just, com- combined with, like, working too much out of school, not really getting much out of it, school not being very good, and then being really sick all of a sudden, Yeah, it was just this sort of perfect storm of I hate this, fuck this.
4: How did you go about, like, constituting a career uh, from there?
0: I just took every single possible opportunity that came to me. I remember my first uh, sort of financially saving job that I got was Playgirl posted an ad on Craigslist, and I they were paying, like, 800 bucks for these... Uh, porn comics and so I started I started drawing for Playgirl when I was in my early 20s but then also I all my friends were these amazing burlesque dancers and I really was involved in the New York underground performance community so I started drawing at all the shows and then when I was 24 I got a gig as the house artist for The Box uh-huh. and The Box if you've never been there is this depraved nightclub I don't know there would be like two little people painting themselves blue and uh, pretending to be Smurfs and pretending to fuck on stage and so I basically lived at that place. I did every single artistic thing they needed. I designed their bottles. I designed massive theatrical backdrops for them. That was where I artistically came of age.
4: Did you already feel like you had a kind of style of, how, of your art, or did you, you sort of develop it given the environment in which you were kind of like needing to do these projects?
0: I always had a style, and I think your style isn't really something that you develop. I think it comes from you. like It's like your handwriting, and it comes from your flaws as much as it does your virtues. So I definitely had a, an intrinsic way that I drew all of the details, the curl curlicues, sort of a cruel sense of humor. But then working at this nightclub and spending night after night with these brilliant performers and also with this scumbag piece of shit audience, the combination of these two things really gave me an artistic vocabulary that I used for years and years.
4: The people who went to the nightclub were terrible. They're
0: we're absolutely saying. terrible. They were all the hedge fund boys. They were they were the guys who destroyed the economy were in the audience. And all of my, my beautiful my, my beautiful performer friends were performing for them. It was like girls before swine. God, it was two thousand and ten the box just opened a branch in london and they flew me out and i me and my assistant did 90 feet of murals in about 8 days maybe we just did it like in a binge we had to work at night because the construction workers were there during the day and everything was jerry rigged it's freezing they had no heat there were signs that said beware asbestos everywhere Jeez. and we were just like doing these murals it was like being saint teresa or something it was proper art martyrdom and my, the main room, like the first room, when you would go in the door, I did this round mural of these pigs dressed as English fox hunters riding the symbols of England and hunting a man. So they're riding like the unicorn and the lion and the griffin and they're hunting this man and they're chasing him like and the man is wearing a fox mask. And the man runs up the staircase that I did and I painted I painted the staircase with all of my, um, my friends, you know, sort of as gods and the audience as pigs. So this man runs up the staircase, and then at the other end, he gets thrown back out at the other at the other end of the room by a waitress. And he's a pig, and he goes and joins in the fox hunt to persecute someone else.
4: So this was kind of like a a statement about the yeah about,
0: about, <laughs> about, about the, the whole place.
4: The clientele. Did your did the the people who own the club did, were they kind of like in on the joke and they thought like that's great?
0: They loved it. Yeah, they they were sort of some of my first uh, some of the first people who ever got me. Some of my first real supporters.
4: So how long did that last? How long, like what, what kind of time period in terms of like, how long that supported you that, that kind of gig?
0: It didn't support me exclusively. I've never actually had a gig that supported me exclusively. I've yeah. never had a full time job. I've yeah. always cobbled things together, but I guess when did I start working? God, I feel like an old lady. I think I started working there in 2000 and 2006.
4: It's not that long ago. Yeah, that's less than ten years ago.
0: <laughs> and I worked, I worked there pretty intensively for about four years. I still collaborate with them all the time. I uh, did the murals for the interior of a restaurant opened up by one of the owners, Kitty's Canteen, in the Lower East Side.
4: You say you, you were always cobbling together gigs. Did you did you set out with like some sort of vision of this is the this is the artist I want to be. This is the type of work I want to be doing. Or did it sort of evolve over time? I feel like you know I'm obviously much more familiar with like the journalism world where someone might set out and say, uh, I want to end up writing for the New Yorker. Or I want to end up working at the New York Times or something like that. Or these days, maybe it's BuzzFeed or Fusion or something like that. But did you have like an ultimate end like that in mind or was it just, did you just sort of evolve?
0: Fuck no, I just wanted to live. I, I mean, I I was always so outside of the power structure of traditional fine art, like, like, you know, where you go to Yale, you get your MFA, you get a fancy Chelsea gallery. Like, I was never going to have that. I just wanted to. I wanted to draw, and I wanted to hang out with cool performers. I suppose I had as a talisman uh, Toulouse Lautrec. He's my favorite artist. Just the image of this tiny, corrupt little man sitting at a cafe table, uh, getting shit-faced drunk every night, and drawing these beautiful and deeply tough performers. I mean. I think that Toulouse-Lautrec captured sex workers and captured female performers with more empathy than any other male artist that I can think of. Mm-hmm. And I grew up completely obsessed with him. In sixth grade, I remember I made a diorama of him with like him getting drunk and the can-can girl. And um, I sp- think that that was kind of what motivated me. I always had that image that I could use my art to um, I could use it like a lockpick. You know? I could use it to get into situations that I wouldn't otherwise be allowed in. And I could use it to make friends with these beautiful, glittering men and women who I was always kind of intimidated by.
4: So it almost like uh, was both something aspirational, but also kind of like evolved out of your social, almost like your social scene that you wanted to be a part of.
0: Exactly, yes.
4: I don't know that much about the gallery world, to be honest. So did later, did you find like once they, once your art was out there in the world that they did want, they did want it, they did want you to be part of that, that you broke in a different way?
0: I did, yeah. I'm actually... Going to be doing a solo show with Postmasters at some point. Uh, Postmasters is a gallery in Tribeca. Uh-huh. Magda Sawan, the woman who runs Postmasters, she's not. She's not like a typical gallery person. She's just so fucking smart and scathing, and just like sees through bullshit. So now I have galleries that are interested in me. But for a long time, I mean that that seemed as far to me as Atlantis. You know. At
4: what point did that? Did you feel like I can do this?
0: I mean, I suppose when I first started supporting myself. I never had a full-time job because I'm dysfunctional. If I had to go to an office, I, I don't know, I'd probably collapse or fall asleep or have a breakdown. I, I, I barely passed through school. I, you know, I dropped out of college. I am totally incapable of showing up at a specific place, and you know pretending to be civilized and human all day. You got here, you're
4: here, you came here and, right and it's on time. For, it's for a very limited amount of time, 40 <laughs> minutes, you know.
0: I might turn into the Wicked Witch after that. No, but I'm utterly dysfunctional and so I just always knew I, I couldn't work jobs like that. That was originally why I started, like, you know, doing a sex industry job because it was flexible and made a lot more money, you know, per hour than another type of job and also... I could be dysfunctional, you know, doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never had any aspiration to to get like a full-time staff job anywhere because then I would have to play human all day. Mm-hmm.
4: And did these things, you say a sex industry job, and you've written in different places and talked eloquently about, you know, modeling things and things that, that you did to make money over time. Do you feel like doing those jobs also, did that stuff materialize in your art itself in terms of having to do the, that type of work or not even having to do, wanting to do or whatever?
0: Oh my God, so much. I mean... For a long time, I felt most comfortable uh, being friends with women who had also worked in the sex industry because we had we had sort of a a different um, view on the world. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of like white middle class, you know, sort of good girls. There's this expectation that um, you know if you're if you're good and you know you do what you're supposed to, you'll be protected by society. And once you do a sex industry job, you know you're not going to be protected by society. You've you've thrown away, you know that sort of good girl privilege you know if anything happens to you that's on you and so ultimately you just become reliant on each other Mm -hmm. it's a sort of uh, level of um, toughness and also solidarity amongst women that i i still find really admirable and attractive and i mean for that reason i you know i draw a lot of sex workers i've done a lot of journalism about sex workers
2: I'm going to pause Evan here for a quick word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Uh, if you saw the Super Bowl last night, they had a... Excellent commercial with The Dude, a.k.a. Jeff Bridges, who has made an album in partnership with Squarespace. You can you can hear it at DreamingWithJeff.com. It's a series of relaxed sounds, guided meditations, and stories. This is not a stunt. This is a real album that you can listen to for free or pay what you want to download, and all the money goes to the charity No Kid Hungry, which Jeff Bridges is the face of. You're going to get so inspired by all of this that you're going to want to make a website for yourself, be it a portfolio for your work, a personal site, a store, pretty much anything you want to do. Squarespace can help you set it up with 24-7 support, beautiful templates, easy customization, and the best part is there's no credit card required for a free trial. So I want you to go to squarespace.com, start building your website, and then you're going to put in offer code longform when you're checking out to get 10% off and support this show. Uh, Squarespace start here go anywhere. Thanks Squarespace. Here Evan is back with Molly Crabapple.
4: At what point did you did you did journalism sort of come into the mix? Like did you always think of it as part of what you're doing as sort of documenting the world?
0: I always used my sketchpad to document the world around me. I remember being like 18 and in southeastern Turkey and I was, you know, drawing like these little streets in Kurdistan
4: you have this uh, this way of sort of like documenting the things around you that's exactly
0: the first time I ever really wrote professionally with like a few little exceptions was after I got arrested in 2012 during a protest I wrote an essay about it for CNN and I didn't write the essay because my arrest was so tragic or whatever because it wasn't Um, I had a very easy arrest you know as far as arrests go but I wrote the essay because all arrests are traumatic, even easy ones like the one I had. Right. And I was so angry that we live in a society where people just think it's cool and just think it's OK for uh, black people, for queer people, for poor people to just be arrested, you know, for, for whatever. You know, like they don't they don't realize that um, like policies like stop and frisk or just like the policies of just arresting like black kids or hassling them are, are actually like deeply traumatic and leave deep scars. And so I wanted to... Um, you know, write an essay about arrest and why it was so shitty because of that, because it just made me angry. And the essay went really viral, and then Vice offered me a column, and I started writing for them, and then I just got kind of addicted to saying things as opposed to just alluding to them in art.
4: I read that your your sort of apartment near, near Zuccotti Park, near the Occupy stuff, became this kind of like central place for press and for people to congregate. So how did that... How did that come about and what was your sort of role in the whole Occupy movement?
0: I I live across the street from Zuccotti Park, so I had the real privilege of being able to go down there pretty much every day. Initially, I just started drawing Occupy because I was really angry that the media was bullshitting about it. Mm Bullshitting
4: in what what way?
0: Well, the media would say, oh, these are all dirty, spoiled, you know, lazy hippie kids, right? Mm -hmm. Then I'd go down there and I'd see construction workers and I'd see people from the teachers union and I'd see old ladies. And I'd be like, this is bullshit. Why aren't you showing these people? So my first piece around Occupy was just a series of portraits of people down there. And I'm friends with a lot of journalists. And so when Occupy happened, because I was across the street, I was like, hey, guys, you can come and charge your laptops and get warm, drink some coffee at my place. And you know how journalists are—like you invite one, and then like forty of them just sort of spring up. And before you know, it, you have a press room running off of your floor.
4: So you already—you already knew a lot of journalists at that. Yeah. At that point, your arrest was a year later, right? Yeah, I was, it was, was the, during the one-year anniversary. The one-year anniversary of Occupy, and so when you thought, "But you know what? I want to write something about this." Like, what was the process by which you got it published?
0: Uh, I had an agent, and he just went to CNN oh. and said would you like this and they said yes
4: yeah that'll do it
0: i was doing comics at the time so i had a guy that was kind of repping that but i don't do comics anymore now i i just sort of have this amazing agent who represents everything i I love her she has changed my life actually
4: yeah it's lydia right yeah lydia wills she's great so you you mentioned you know getting this gig for vice and the stories you've done they've been fascinating they've been they've been in-depth reporting, you know, going to places and really spending some time there. And is that something that you you kind of gravitated towards naturally in terms of, all right, you're going to show up in Syria and refugee, camp, refugee camps, you're going to show up in, in the UAE where there are workers. And did you sort of feel like, all right, I'll figure it out, or I know what to do? Or how did you approach it when you first got an assignment like that?
0: first sort of long-form news thing that I did for Vice was I went to Guantanamo Bay.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know. I was I was fucking terrified that I would fuck up. So I just did as much research as I conceivably could. I spoke to absolutely every single person around it. I mean, for months, I, I lived in that story. Yeah. To the point where I was actually pretty severely fucked up after I came back from Guantanamo the first time because all I could think of was the young man that I was profiling who was a prisoner there and how... Well, I was over on this side of the barbed wire, you know, eating McDonald's with the guards. He's over on the other side of the barbed wire getting a fucking tube shoved into his stomach and force-fed.
4: He was Tunisian or is he Algerian? Algerian, Nabil yeah.
0: Hajarab, who's free now, and he's a lovely guy. We email sometimes.
4: Oh, he is free. Because yeah. I, I got to the end of the story, I, I, I meant to look it up, but at the end of the story, it says like he might be part of this group yeah. that's going to be released. But So he was released.
0: Yeah, he was released. Yeah, and he's he's lovely. And one of the things that was strange was the media isn't allowed to speak to Guantanamo prisoners at all. They have this sort of bullshit justification for it. They say it's part of the Geneva Convention for not putting them on display, but it's the only part of the Geneva Convention they actually obey. So I was sort of learning everything about him through his lawyer from Reprieve. And I didn't, you never know, you know, like, is this him or is this the lawyer, like, trying to make him look good? You know, what's, what What am I seeing? It was like seeing someone through the glass darkly. And then after he was released, he wrote me an email to thank me for the piece, and we corresponded a bit. And I was like, no, that was you. That was absolutely you.
4: You know, you look at these these stories like that one, and you've sketched prisoners, you've sketched courtroom scenes. And what are what are the actual logistics of how you approach gathering that?
0: Oh, God, it's... It's crazy. I mean, for something like the Guantanamo piece, I would be on a tour of the prison, basically being like sort of dragged and poked from room to room by these very belligerent guards. And I'd be frantically trying to draw what was in front of me because I can't really take photos because it's so censored there.
4: But they would let you draw as you went? Yeah, they
0: would let me draw because the the way that they get around you not being able to take photos is they say, oh, you're allowed to take photos, but you can't show faces and you can't show a certain number of doors and you can't show cameras. So it's like you're playing Twister with your your camera, you know, and you can't actually get any interesting shots. I see. But as an artist, I I was able to kind of draw around that so I'd be frantically drawing and then I would be like frantically taking notes whenever the whenever anyone said anything. I, I have the most overly detailed notes. I I take notes on everything around me, every little bit of detail, everything someone's eating, every sign there. And in Guantanamo that was especially interesting because every visual detail of that place is so surreal. For instance, when you're going into the um into Camp Delta, which is the abandoned prisons, there's like these guards. Mm-hmm. They're sitting in a booth, they're searching you. And they have a sign. It's a chart that goes from red to green for you to judge your spiritual health. For the guards at Guantanamo Bay have these mass-produced charts that they're given to judge their spiritual health and how spiritually healthy they are.
4: At the time, did they seem spiritually healthy? Were they green? (laughs) When you were there,
0: <laughs> they did. They, uh, I mean, I, I don't know where they checked themselves on the charts. You know, I, I can only judge that myself. I, I, um, I, I don't feel fit to talk about the spiritual health of them without, while well, speaking to them so briefly and under such censored circumstances.
4: It doesn't seem like a place of great spiritual health. No, I do not. As someone think, who's never been there, that would be my assumption.
0: I do not think Guantanamo is a place of great spiritual health. No.
4: Did you feel like you got the story? You were able to get the story that you wanted, given the the. Constricted environment in which you can gather information. There, like I, I know a lot of reporters who have done stuff there, and it's just it's just so hard to get like a real personal story.
0: It's so hard. I mean, Guantanamo is a place that will make you challenge the fundamental nature of truth. Things are so unknowable there. I mean, when the CIA torture report came out, there were all of these things in it that I had heard from other reporters that I had heard from lawyers. Um, that no one could really, that no one had really been able to prove, but they were like kind of hinted at, and they were actually things that I asked the military, and the military laughed at me. They were like, "That is so batshit! How could you even believe that?" And then obviously they were, you know, totally true. Right. I mean, I got the story that I got. What I was trying to do because I, at that time, I didn't have much faith in myself as an, as an investigator. I had never done it before. I was just trying to get the story of this one young French Algerian guy and what his life was like. I was just trying to make people. Feel what it was like to be in Guantanamo as an individual. Mm-hmm. That was the thing that it was that Guantanamo had effaced all of these men's identities. It had turned them into boogeymen in orange jumpsuits. And I felt like if I could just make people empathize, and if I could just make them feel what it might be like to be locked up there themselves, and you know how how you make them understand how you might come to that and what does to you, that would be success for me in the story.
4: And when you sit down to actually put that story together, how much are you driven by the visuals versus the writing? Do you do you write it out first and then and then kind of lace in the drawings or do you build something around the drawings?
0: When I was in Guantanamo, I did hundreds of drawings from life. I filled two, total, two whole books with them. Yeah. And I only used a few of those for the piece. The book Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, right? It's this uh, collaboration between Aggie and um, Walker Evans. But they conceived of the um, photographs and the writing as mutually complementary, but neither of them leaning on the other that's how I always conceived of my art and my writing as well. I will illustrate things that, you know, are mentioned in the text, but I also sometimes view them as like an expansion as something, as something else. Cause if I can totally describe something, I don't need to do a one-on-one illustration of right, that. Right. I, I want to use them to evoke something that I haven't already, you know, said in words.
4: And you also did this, um, this sort of like short ebook called discordia
0: with Lori Penny. So in 2012, um, Sort of at the height of the crisis in Greece, me and Lori went to Athens and we did a short ebook about sort of protest culture and young people and life in Athens in the middle of this horrible economic crisis when you're just seeing the rise of the golden dawn. I did maybe two dozen illustrations for it. She wrote 24,000 words. It was my first time working really intensively with another journalist. I learned so much from it. You know, Lori is an extraordinary writer an extraordinary journalist. It's amazing to see Syriza win now and so deeply inspiring. And I I have friends in Greece who are like who are just so happy about this. It's like such a vindication because two years ago, it was fucking dark. It felt like that country was going to go to the fucking Golden Dawn or else it was going to go to new democracy, which had a lot of the same beliefs as the Golden Dawn. But they just knew how to package them respectably as opposed to looking like Nazi cosplayers.
4: When you went... I mean, first of all, it was interesting because Greece was not something I feel like that was in the news in the U.S. at all. No, so it was not like an interesting all. place to say, like, okay, we're going to go there now. And it was also post – there were all these protests and it was sort of at what happens in the aftermath of these protests and there's these right-wingers. And then uh, I got to the part about this sort of, like, this political party, which seemed, like, really on the outs – and then uh, it's the one that recently won.
0: Exactly. I mean, I remember meeting this young journalist, Natasha Giamali, there, and like she was affiliated with Syriza, and she was so fucking like scrappy and smart. But I could not have imagined at that time um, her party, the the party that she was affiliated with, getting into power. Even though I I deeply believed it deserved to be in power, but I just I, I just had a much darker view of it and stuff. And yeah, it's it's wonderful seeing seeing them win.
4: One of the things that's that's addressed actually in that book is this a little bit of the idea of activism and journalism and how like what the line is between those and since you know that part was sort of written by
0: by lori by
4: lori like what's your view of sort of activism versus journalism and how much of your political viewpoint informs your journalism or you try to keep it out or what's your sort of approach to that
0: you know it's a it's a hard and complicated thing I don't believe that there's such a thing as objective or unbiased journalism at all. I think that a lot of the mainstream media reporting on uh, national security state really shows that you would see people who would consider themselves, you know, very um, respectable, you know, unbiased people, but they were just taking as articles of faith things by government officials that turned out to be total bullshit for no reason except that they thought these people looked respectable and they had fancy jobs and were in suits. You know, there was nothing else; it was just a cultural affiliation. That sort of thing is just as prone to horrific lapses as you know some some young vice reporter is. <laughs> right. I mean, pro- much actually much more so because the consequences are much much graver when when those guys fuck up. I mean, reality is such a multifaceted thing, right? You know, universe and a grain of sand and everything. And what you choose to emphasize always says so much about who you are. I mean, this, this would be a classical one when uh, Daniel Pantaleo strangled to death Eric Garner. Which newspapers mentioned that he had already cost the city 30,000 bucks for slapping a guy's balls? Uh-huh. Is that worth writing about or isn't it? Uh, where, where you fall on that, I think, deeply reveals your biases. I don't think that there's an unbiased answer there.
4: Right. So you're saying like whenever, whatever so-called objective journalism...
0: Chooses to emphasize and chooses not to.
4: Yeah. You're always leaving things out or, yeah. or putting things in. And do you, you, you came from the art world into yeah. journalism. You came through a side door or as a sideline to what you were doing primarily. So do you feel sort of freed from some of the strictures of what other journalists, how they ap- might approach a particular topic? Or do you feel like you've tried to go out and internalize like the approach that a journalist would take, whether it's like one that's a little more on the activist end or not?
0: I mean, I think there are two uh, parts of that. I mean, there's the ethical things that all journalists should do, right? Like you don't lie. you You don't, you don't make shit up. But there are a lot of uh, stylistic things too that someone you know who writes for the New York Times might want to present their work in a certain way, and someone who writes for um, foreign policy might want to present their work in a certain way. And I just wrote how I am. You know, I didn't, I didn't sort of angle myself for any particular editorial voice or any idea of what a respectable person sounds like. I just tried to research as good as I could and write as true as I could. And so in that sense, starting as an artist was freeing because I never had a professional goal to go in any particular publication or style, I just was trying to write.
4: Yeah. And so these, the, the topics that you've picked, I mean, you definitely are sort of seeking out stories of people who are disenfranchised in various ways or maybe underreported or difficult to get to. So I'm curious with something like, you know, you did the Syrian refugee story. How did that come about and how, how did you sort of approach trying to get that story?
0: That actually came about through a bit of luck. I was in Rehanli on the border doing a mural for the school for refugee kids uh-huh. with this um, Syrian American charity called the Karam Foundation. They bring out a bunch of um, mostly Syrian and Syrian American volunteers, and they some of them fix the kids' teeth, some of them like do sports workshops. They asked me to come out, and I did a big I did a big mural. It was really fun. But my friend uh, Patrick Hillsman was in Gaziantep, and Patrick had some contacts with the um, media office of the Islamic Front, which ran the Bab Salama crossing. And so he was like, do you want to do you want to go to Syria? And, you know, obviously, it's very dangerous. To, it's very dangerous to go to Syria, even just over the border. It's, I think, the most dangerous place to go, actually. But I, I said, you know, of course, of course, I would like to. Of course, I of course, I want to see that. And so we went to the Bab al-Salaam camp and we went to Azaz and I mean, it's, it's fucking staggering, you know, the, the bubble slum camp, it's like 20,000, mostly women and kids, um, their tents this winter, it snowed there. I can't even, I mean, people, you know, kids froze to death. Like the, like plumbing wasn't really good. There was like raw sewage and there were still all these, um, young people trying to, um, organize stuff. Like there is like this young Syrian guy teaching yoga to the kids, you mm-hmm. know, they were really trying to make lives for themselves, even in the most shitty and adverse conditions. And, um, you know, at the time, like, ISIS was car bombing a garage near the camp. And I met, like, a little boy whose dad was blown up and that just randomly. It's, I mean, it's fucking, it's fucking devastating, you know. And they're so um, abandoned by by the world. Like, they're, countries just aren't taking refugees. Like, I think Britain took 90 people. You know, America, I, th- I want to say, took, like, 130 last year. The rich world is doing jack shit. And it's just um, saddling country, border countries like Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey with caring for these, you know, millions and millions of displaced people.
4: In that kind of environment, how do you sort of decide even what story to bring back? I mean, there's thousands of stories you could you could get there. What's your sort of approach when you're there in terms of trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to do something for Vice about this. I'm here. Now what?
0: Well, with that one, I mean, it was easier. I only spent a day there, you know, so I had a a limited thing, For instance, with my Abu Dhabi piece, um, I did a piece on the migrant workers that are building these mega museums of the future in Abu Dhabi. The standard media narrative is, look at these poor, foolish people um, from like Pakistan and Bangladesh and India who are tricked, and they're like cattle, and they just want to go home. And it's like, no, that's that's not it at all. I mean, these men are deeply oppressed by the society. All labor organizing is banned. But these guys are also fucking heroes to their families. They're um, very often like the smartest and bravest people in their families because they're you know, leaving everything they know to go to another country to sort of seek, the, seek you a know, better future. Right. And um, they also uh, strike all the time. I think there were like 100 strikes in the last three years in the Abu Dhabi construction industry, which I mean, I don't think there's a fucking 100 strikes in the New York construction industry in the last <laughs> few years, and, and we're a much bigger city, you know, and, and we don't arrest people for striking. Or, or deport them. So these guys, while they were being totally fucked with and being beaten down by the society, they were also resisting. And so I wanted to find those narratives of resistance, and I ended up really focusing on my translator there, who is this young South Asian man who was so fucking smart. He had been working um, for an international NGO in kind of a conflict zone, which is where he was from, uh-huh. and the local militant group in the conflict zone was killing people, killing locals that worked with this NGO. And he was like, fuck, I got to skip town. And he didn't go to college. He had taught himself several languages. I mean, he was like achingly smart kid, but he, he had just never been to college. so There wasn't any like option for him to immigrate. And so he gets a job, you know, in the construction industry in the Gulf because it's a way to get out of town. Right. Even though he had never done blue-collar labor before, he he, uh, he told me that he shows up and he's like, what the fuck is this? this is the hardest work I've ever done. I worked in an ice cream shop and, and as a translator before.
4: Right. Which is another kind of myth that these yeah. are sort of like laborers from one country that are just going to another and something like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, some of them are, but some, you know, some of them aren't. And he is so um, skeptical of society there, and which just wants to um label him as like this like stupid and compliant idiot even even though he's probably smarter than like almost everyone i've ever met and so he um he gave me amazing stories and i really i wanted to focus on on him and people like him because i felt like the best way to um really talk about why it was so fucked up the way that workers were being treated wasn't just to make them objects of pity but was to show them as full human beings
4: how did you actually find that guy and how did you get into the workers uh you know you spent time with with workers in the sort of residence places where they're sort of confined uh to stay how did you sort of make that happen
0: uh, there was an amazing local journalist who helped me who was later um, he's not allowed back in the country anymore but he um he's helped i think most of the people who have done the stories on there and it's because he believes it's unjust you know and He's one of the best journalists I've ever met. I'm so deeply indebted to him, especially because in a lot of countries, if you're like the Western journalist, essentially what you do is you, you go to the country and you pay, um, you pay a local to show you around, translate for you, set up things. It's called those people are called fixers. But in Abu Dhabi you don't have the fixer economy because Emiratis are usually richer than you and because everyone else uh, can be deported.
4: Right, they're scared. Yeah, they're scared. I mean, they're
0: they're fucking terrified. So, the fact that this this brilliant journalist um, helped me with that was you know something I it was a debt I don't think I'll ever be able to pay back.
4: Uh, why did he get kicked out of the country? Did he eventually get caught helping people? Yeah,
0: he got he got he got tied with a big story. It's I, I can't really talk about the details of it, but um, yeah, he it was for journalism.
4: And was this the same trip in which you? Uh, you went to the uh, the Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, I president. took a day trip to
0: Dubai and I. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you saw the other side.
0: I mean, Westerners are so fucking used to being on top of the world that when there's a country that's richer than them, they want to demean it. They want to be like, oh, it's cheap, it's tacky, you know, it's bullshit. They don't know what, you know, they're not smart. They're just like nouveau riche fuckers. And that's not how Dubai is at all. I mean, Dubai and Abu Dhabi are beautiful fucking cities. Um, I wrote in one of my piece that uh, Dubai is Versailles, not Vegas. These cities, when you look at them, are some of the most staggering modernist or staggering contemporary architecture I've ever seen in my life. A lot of the art that's being bought and sold there is fucking astounding work. Mm -hmm. The the whole like gross racist like oil chic myth is like so it's not true and it's fucking gross. And so I wanted to um, you know give. Give the Emirates their due for that. However, one thing that you do notice, especially in Dubai, is that white people who have um, been really mediocre in their home countries or just total fuck ups, will go there and basically because they're white, their white skin is the only credential they need. Like they could have shat the bed at home in every possible way, but they go to Dubai and they get to you know have a have a nice job. They get to have um, servants because. You know the wages for servants are so low they get to sort of like live the colonial the colonial fantasy over over again there. And I felt that that's what Trump was doing. you know, here's this fuck up with a comb over who goes to Dubai and he gets to um he gets to pretend like he's this totally legitimate real estate mogul
4: and you and you uh, you got into like he was having a press conference
0: yeah i got into I got into a press conference for him. and you know, he gives his spiel. he's making a golf courses there. And the workers are getting paid like 200 bucks a month. And after the press conference is over, him and Ivanka are sitting there and they say, any questions? And I I raise my hand, of course, because I do not have, I've not absorbed the etiquette lessons of the UAE. And I'm like, Mr. Trump, your workers are getting paid $200 a month. Are you satisfied with that? And the whole room just went dead just dead silence security guard looked at me like they wanted to beat my face and like the person i had come with is like sort of inching away from me like to so it's so, like not have like my stink on him you know i mean just just dead and then the publicist says that's not an appropriate question and then the next question is mr trump dubai stands for luxury and you stand for luxury is that why you like dubai
4: that's an appropriate question that's right an appropriate there. question <laughs> That's exactly the kind of question he was there to answer.
0: Yeah, and he said, he said, and the thing that offended me so much, you know, as a New Yorker, he said, you know, the world is full of failure, but in Dubai, everything is clean and everything is perfect. Why can't New York be like this? Whoa.
4: He doesn't, he there's doesn't, a lot wrapped up in that. Yeah, there's a lot wrapped up answer. in that.
0: And he, sure, he sure doesn't do that when he's like, you know, being an Islamophobe back in the States. <laughs> I can't imagine him saying that.
4: Yeah, seriously. So when you do, when you know, that kind of piece, what's your feeling about sort of the impact of that that kind of story? Like, do you do a piece like that? And hope that it has an impact in some way, or do you think about wanting to make change?
0: I always hope that they'll have an impact. I always hope that they'll embarrass some hypocritical bastard, or that you know that that things will change. But I did one piece recently. It was about these things that are called human trafficking intervention courts in New York. Mm-hmm. There are these new sort of courts that are that everyone um, who's arrested and charged with prostitution-related offenses supposedly goes through. Though you know, not everyone, but almost everyone. And they're supposed to redefine the women as victims, and supposed to be all about helping them, but it's 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 not true. It's just something where they, where the women get arrested by the same abusive cops that always arrested them, and then they go before this court, and um, they're they're sort of encouraged to plea bargain in exchange for classes. And and I mean, it's it's ludicrous. Like if if you were a trafficked person who was, you know, who had like a violent smuggler and. Six days of classes would not save you.
4: Classes is not really what you're looking for. No,
0: you you might need like a shelter, yeah. you know, um, a stipend to live off of. You know, there's a number of things, very practical things, but uh, classes are not are not that. So yeah, I did this big piece on the policing of prostitution. And part of my motivation was just really to show the hypocrisy of these people who claim that they're advocates for prostitutes or advocates for trafficked people and yet are just um, justifying the same old police violence that has always been making uh, these women's lives miserable
4: and did you feel like when the piece came out that that it did have whatever result you wanted it to have?
0: I hope so i mean the uh the public defenders um who I spoke to loved the piece. The woman who is who is sort of the main story who's this she was an older lady uh, named Love who had once been a sex worker in Hunt's Point, like a street based sex worker, but um she wasn't anymore she was like studying to be a surgical tech and she just got arrested because the cops knew her face from back when she was and they saw her walking and they were like let's yank her and make an easy arrest you know Mm -hmm. and she unlike almost everyone else she fought the conviction because she was like I'm not fucking plea bargaining to a crime I didn't do so I followed I followed her trial Um, she fortunately she won like they said that she wasn't guilty Uh And um, I wrote I wrote a lot about her and her life, and uh, she actually asked me to make all these printouts of my articles so she could give them to um, her friends who still work in Hunts Point. I mean, to me, as long as the marginalized communities that I'm writing about don't think I'm full of shit, like that's success to me.
4: Huh, interesting. How do you feel about Vice? I don't know a ton of people at Vice, and I'm really intrigued by it because I feel like it. there's a lot of good work coming out of there now and a lot of interesting stuff, and it's also there's a certain flavor of the work that is also sort of like anti-corporate media in a way, even though Vice is like seriously corporate corporate media media, in like a major, major way now. It's like take $500 million from Fox. Yeah. Um, In terms of being a writer and illustrator for that entity, what is it like? Like what's the editorial process like? But also sort of like how does the world react to going in and saying I'm I'm from Vice like these days?
0: So those are really good questions. Um, The editorial process is really just like anywhere else, except they have some of the most rigorous fact checking I've ever uh, seen. Oh, yeah. When I was doing my Guantanamo piece, the fact checker called up the Guantanamo PR office to make sure that um, the condiment packets that I mentioned were actually the condiment packets that they served. I don't have anything bad to say about their editorial. Um, in terms of how people perceive it, it's it's interesting. I've been at borders where the border guard is like, I'm a Vice fan and he's just like some bro and he's really cool to me. I've been at places where they think that Vice is not serious media. I recently had a thing where, oh, this is a hilarious story. I'm not going to use her name, but there is um, a woman who I met at um, Guantanamo who was, um, her brother had died in uh, the trade center and she's an older lady. And um, she, they, they have they have this really, emotionally devastating thing that they do with the press where they have a press conference for all of the where you just listen to um, the family members who, of people who've died in 9-11 describe how their relatives have died in mm-hmm. extreme detail mm-hmm. which I mean for me as someone who uh, was in New York during then was pretty pretty devastating Yeah. but she's you know an amazing woman and you know very rebellious and very smart and years later she came to a lecture that I was at and she says to me and she's like this little old lady after my little old white haired lady she says to me she's like so um, I didn't know what vice was uh, when I saw it in the media list, but I, I thought it was something to do with sex. And that's cool because I like sex. <laughs> so I thought we would get along.
4: I guess that's one advantage. That's a, that's yeah. a hidden advantage.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, for many things, you just get sort of perpetually underestimated. But I don't think being underestimated is bad. I mean, I I think being underestimated is good in a lot of circumstances. It makes people tell you more things. I'm not in this to get quotes from powerful people. I'm So I don't. I don't care if they think that I'm like a fancy muckety-muck or not. And I mean, I think the other thing is Vice publishes some stupid shit, right? And some brilliant shit. But so does everything. I always think about the New York Times, right, which publishes some of the best journalism in the world. And then it also publishes Thomas Friedman, who's apparently been on mushrooms for like 20 years and <laughs> bloviating by David Brooks. Like in the same in the same paper, like how does Thomas Friedman and David Brooks coexist with brilliant reporting from, you know, inside Iraq? They. they he, the, the expectation that a platform um, would be consistent has never actually been true, and it's yeah. even less true now than it ever has been.
4: Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, it's sort of as it ever was. There's always sort of like a mixing of yeah. some garbage in yeah. with, uh, with the best stuff. The other area of stuff I wanted to ask you about was, you touched on a couple of these things earlier, but you've also written like extremely frankly about your own life. Mm-hmm. And I'm always curious when when people are able to do that, is that something that came naturally to you? You know, like you wrote about your abortion, for instance, and like that whole situation. Did you feel like that was something that you could convey to other people and they could identify with? Or sort of like what goes into saying, all right, I'm going to open up about these things. These are very, very personal things.
0: With the abortion thing in particular is a political act. Because one out of three American women have had abortions. But if you like look at like sort of public or famous women, none of them will talk about their abortion. None of them. So peop- so because of this, abortion is allowed to be defined in America by its complete edge cases. Like even people who consider themselves like good liberals will will say, oh, you know, she's like a teenager that didn't know how babies were made or, oh, it was an accident or, you know, like or, oh, the, you know, the fetus was going to die. Like, I mean, you know, they, they'll think of these like these excuses and these justifications. And I think that the reason that that's how abortion is talked about is because no one will fucking speak frankly about it. And I was really inspired by this French petition that was done in the 70s when abortion was still illegal in France mm-hmm. that was called the Declaration of the 373 Slots, And it was every single major French female figure signed it, like Simone de Beauvoir signed it, uh, Catherine Deneuve signed it, Jean Moreau, um, François Sagan, all of these women signed a thing saying that they had abortions when abortion was illegal. And... If you think that abortion is something, you know, that's solely defined by these edge cases, the existence of this document, I mean, just totally, you know, throws a wrench in that thinking. And so I did it in the spirit of more people should talk about this. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that. I'll go first, you know. And I was a little scared at first. I was scared I'd get like crazy right wing, you know, not bags. Yeah. I got a lot of people who yelled at me and called me a baby killer, but I don't I don't care. You yeah. Know, they're stupid and wrong. But in terms of impact, that was the most impactful thing I've ever done. I got hundreds and hundreds of letters from women uh, thanking me for that. I mean, hundreds. I got letters from women who had had abortion in Ireland when it was illegal, um, from older women who had it in America when it was still illegal. And it always, you know, sort of had the the trauma of having to go through, you know, a pretty brutal medical procedure to go through in, you know, not ideal circumstances. Um I had women who were about to get their abortion and said like my piece helped them. That piece I think really really helped women. I, I mean I know it, I know it did and it helped a lot of them. I'm deeply proud of the impact that piece had.
4: Yeah, I can imagine the the response that something like that would get cuz you just don't you don't read that kind of thing in that kind of depth very often. And I I wondered I mean, I don't know if this was... I have speculated as to your motivations for writing about this stuff, but it occurred to me, like, you're, you'd you be, like, the hardest person in the world to blackmail or something. Like, that, this the stuff that someone would say, like, I found out you used to pose naked for money. You'd be like, yeah, I wrote, uh, I wrote about that. That you kind of, like, put all this stuff out in the world and in a way... I'm speculating here, so tell me if I'm wrong. Like, it makes you, like, a little bit invincible to, to that sort of criticism.
0: I mean, to, you know, to, to a degree... I think everyone's going to have to learn to live like that though. We're seeing the death of um the private self. We're living in this time where our social interactions are cached and searchable and live forever. Our, you know, our baby pictures, um our teenage political proclamations and all their embarrassment. Every everything about us is you know, it lives forever on the cloud. And I think either this can lead to People accepting other people in their complexity and realizing that we're all, you know, flawed, variable humans that present many faces or it could just lead to a lot of mass cruelty, which I also see which I also see happening. But I mean, I think, unfortunately, that just that just seems the way that the world is going on um, both, you know, this both complete top down surveillance and also the surveillance. Um, you might as well be as frank as possible about yourself because it's not like you're going to be able to hide things.
4: Do you feel like you still have to hustle all the time or do you feel like you arrive at a place where... You, things will come to you and you feel a little more secure.
0: I don't feel like I have to hustle anymore. But, I mean, it took so much work to get there. And even though I don't have to hustle, I still work 12 hours a day. I mean, I do so much work. I draw and write so much. But I don't have to focus at all on finding the work. It just all comes to me now.
4: Just in general, I mean, now you've I've seen your byline in the New York Times. I've seen it in Vanity Fair, uh, Vice, obviously. Do you have a plan for, like, where you want to go journalistically from here? Like, do you want to keep doing the same thing you're doing? Do you have a goal to to do a book of a different type or something like that. My
0: first book is getting published by HarperCollins in November.
4: Oh um, shit, right. Yeah. You got a you got a it's like a it's memoir. A mem- it's my memoir, yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's getting published by HarperCollins and I'm in the like last stages of edits and it's doom, man. Writing a book's fucking hard. I guess I just really like doing extremely long form in depth pieces. I I, I love I love doing that. I love getting that sort of granular level of detail and getting to know people well and you know, doing lots and lots of drawings. And I mean, that's that's just my ambition to keep getting better at those. because I love I love doing them.
4: Well, let's talk about the book for one second. Because I, I I had read that, but I totally forgot about it. So you're doing a memoir. You are how old are you? Thirty one. Thirty one. That's young to be doing a memoir. Is it also illustrated? It is.
0: Yeah. It's um. About 300 pages of prose plus illustrations.
4: Did you do it from memory or did you go back and interview people from your...
0: I, I did it mostly from memory. Um, the people who I'm still close to, I still, um, I did speak to them. Not least of which to make sure that I wasn't writing anything that would make them hate me forever. But yeah, it's mostly it's mostly from memory and also at diaries that I kept.
4: What would you describe as the sort of, I don't know, what's the theme of it? It's
0: the last 10 years and last decade plus in New York from... 9 11 to uh, sort of the hangover after Occupy through the boom years.
4: So, you think it's a story of New York?
0: Yeah, it's a story of New York and coming of age as an artist here.
4: Sounds great. We'll have to have you on after after it comes out so we can actually talk about it. You probably can't talk about it in too much depth now, but uh. I would absolutely
0: love that. That would be very cool.
4: All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
4: That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Molly Crabapple for coming over for that interview. Uh, And thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of longform.org. And, of course, our fantastic editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and our intern, Rachel Mabe. We also had two sponsors this week, Squarespace and Tiny Letter. And uh, please go review us on iTunes. If you go to itunes.com slash Podcast, you can put a review there. If you put a review there, Aaron will record a promotion of your choice you got to send him a note let him know what it is and then he will do it
2: yes just just send us a send us a hello uh, this could be a product could be a person could be a place we are promoing here you get it customized and sent to you all it costs you is one review it could be a negative review i don't care
4: just one review yes, that I, but perf- a positive would be better probably i mean a
2: negative review could seep its way into my promotion so you know
4: Oh, I see.
1: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it.